Well, it's good to see you here. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4. We are making our way through this book on Sunday mornings. We are now at the place where we are learning of Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4, let's read verses 1 through 8. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she bare again his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. The Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Our first week in this chapter, we considered Cain and Abel's parental upbringing. They were both raised to work. One was a farmer, one was a shepherd. They were both raised to acknowledge God, and here they are now bringing an offering unto the Lord. And we considered last week how even though we know how this account will end, if we don't get ahead of the text, then up until this offering day, it would have seemed like they were both on the right track. At first, I believe it would have been a blessing to Adam and Eve to see their two sons willingly bring an offering unto the Lord. They were both acknowledging God. They were both attending church, if you will. They were both bringing offerings unto the Lord. But come to find out, Cain's heart was wicked and far from God. Remember that this is about the offering and the offerer. God had respect unto Abel and to his offering, and God had not respect unto Cain and his offering. Hebrews 11.4 tells us, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And so this has to be about both the offerer and the offering because what you, and maybe who we could say, who or what you place your faith in will determine what kind of an offering you bring unto the Lord. Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground, while Abel brings an offering of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof which means that he brought the best of the best. Simply put, what makes these two sacrifices different? Abel brought a sacrifice of blood, and Cain did not. God taught Adam and Eve at the end of chapter 3 that the way to be made righteous with God is through the blood of an innocent sacrifice. Abel comes with blood, Cain doesn't. And I believe that Abel's offering pictures the one 
who he was trusting in, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come, believing in his blood to make him righteous, while Cain pictures somebody who believes that they can present themselves their good works before God and show that they can stand before Him and have a right standing with Him. And the reason Cain brings an inadequate sacrifice is because he has an inadequate sense of his sinfulness before God. You see, Cain is like those who say, I'm really not that bad. He thinks he can still contribute to his salvation. But when someone who isn't saved comes to see themselves as God sees them while in their lost condition, then they will plead the precious blood of Christ as the only way to be forgiven because they'll realize that they are not righteous enough to add anything to God's salvation through Christ. Abel's offering of a lamb clearly demonstrates he's trusting in the one that his offering pictures, Jesus. That's who made him righteous. Hebrews 11.4 goes on to say, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. How was he made righteous? The same way you and I are, through Christ. Abel was trusting in the perfect, innocent, sinless Lamb of God to come. The only one who can take away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Christ's blood is perfect blood. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So what or who are you trusting in today? Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation or do you still believe you are good enough to add something to Christ's sacrifice? Surely God would not have sacrificed His only begotten Son if there was some other way to be made right before God. And so we must trust in Christ alone. God wants you to come to Him, but you must come to Him by His requirements. God's nature is holy. And He must punish sin. And He has chosen to do that by pouring out His wrath upon Christ in your place. And only by coming through His perfect blood can we be made accepted. Ephesians 1, 6 and 7, it says, "...to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace." So either one accepts Christ taking the punishment for them and be forgiven and thereby enter into a relationship with God, or one rejects Christ's sacrifice, His free salvation, and be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. It's either through the blood or it's you don't come to God at all. Now, the choice is yours to make. God has done everything He can for you. And now it's up to you to decide whether or not you will believe that through faith. But it's your decision. Romans 5, 8, and 9, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath 
through him. Well, let's move on or else I'll preach the same sermon as last week. Let's pick up where we left off last week. We kind of considered what it was like maybe before the offering. The offering's been given. Now let's see what takes place after the offerings have been presented. Cain and Abel have presented themselves and their offerings before God. God has accepted Abel and his offering, rejected Cain and his offering. And we read this at the end of verse 5. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Now one might think, if you're standing before the Creator God, and, and, and let me rearrange that just a little bit. Imagine the Creator God coming and standing before you, as He's doing with Cain. And, and, and if God Almighty says, I'm, I don't have respect unto you or your offering, one would think this would be enough to humble a man and ask God, what must I do to be saved? But that's not what happens. Cain gets very rough. He is ticked off. To be wroth means to burn with anger. It literally means to glow warm. Cain is heating up on the inside. And it's causing his skin to redden. His whole demeanor is changing. I'm sure you've witnessed something like that before. Probably if you've raised kids, for sure. I remember when Adrian said something spiritual to her grandfather that he didn't like hearing. And you got to understand, Adrian wants to be a preacher so bad she can't stand it. And I don't mean one of those sweet preachers like y'all have. I mean one of those mean, hating, harsh, just preachers. But when she said what she said, which was truth, Paul's ears and face began to glow red. Listen to me now. You can get mad at God's laws all you want, but it doesn't change God's requirements. You can get mad that you either come through God the Father, through God the Son, or you don't come at all. You can get mad at that all you want, but your anger will never change God's requirements. It doesn't matter how wroth one gets. This is an immutable law. And God has created immutable laws which we don't have the ability to alter or change whenever we want. And no amount of anger is ever going to change that. You might believe that the law of gravity doesn't apply to you. You might hate the law of gravity. And you might decide, I can walk off the roof and not hit the ground. But I promise you, as you're falling towards the ground, you'll come to the realization that there is an immutable law of gravity upon the planet Earth. You'll know that gravity is still true. Now, did you break God's law of gravity? No. God's law of gravity broke you. And that's what God's laws are meant to do for us. In a sense, we don't really break them. 
in that we can alter them, but we do violate them. And it is the impact of those laws upon our heart which is meant to break us. Coming to God on the merits of the shed blood of Christ is God's law. It is a spiritual law you will never circumnavigate, just like you can't circumvent the law of gravity. You either embrace it or you fight against it, but God will win in the end because it's His law and His requirement. The Bible is absolutely clear. If the Bible is clear on anything, it's this. Salvation is in Christ alone. And who else could bridge the gap between God and sinful man other than God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ? Therefore, you cannot come to God through your own path. Your law will never trump God's law. And if you think you can get to God some other way, you are insulting God and His Christ. Jesus was beaten to an unrecognizable bloody mess. They mashed a crown of thorns into His head. They nailed Him to a cross. And even after He was dead, a soldier with a spear came alongside and pierced His side. He endured God's wrath for you, And yet people today can so flippantly say, there's got to be more than one way to God. No, my friend. After all that Christ endured, there's no way that you should be able to look at Christ and say, well, thanks for going through all that agony, but I think I can get to God some other way. I don't need you to get to God. As I said earlier, you can rest assured if there was some other way, then God would have chosen a different way. Galatians 2.21, Paul said, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness cometh by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. In other words, there's only one way. Jesus said in Matthew 7.13 and 14, Enter ye at the straight gate, For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. I'm starting to preach it all over again, aren't I? I don't know why I can't get off this thought right now, but listen, God wants somebody in here to know. It's not about you. It's not about your efforts and your works and your goodness and and boy, I hope. And listen, God paid the price for you. And and He said, this is the only way. Don't fight it. Don't get mad at it. You being angry at it won't change it. Well, back to our text here. What, What is it about God's salvation that causes such anger? What is it that makes people so upset about the message of Christ. Why wouldn't a lost sinner rejoice that Christ has willingly paid their sin debt and all they have to do is place their faith and trust in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? You would think that message would be embraced the world over. But it's not. We want to add things like our works and our baptism and our church membership. 
The message of Christ is a great message. By the way, gospel means good message. It's good news. There's no better news than God made a way through Christ for us to be reconciled to Him. Have our sins washed away. And yet it is the same message which generates more hate than any other message on planet earth. Why? Contextually here in Genesis 4, it's because people feel their misguided, inadequate offerings ought to be accepted by God. In, in their pride, the idea of their good works being unacceptable for salvation is offensive. And they get mad at God. They still believe they have some amount of righteousness to offer God. Titus 3, 5, and 6. I don't know that it can be any clearer, church. Listen, please. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which He shed on us abundantly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Cain is now very wroth. And the Lord asked Cain in verses 6 and 7, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. As we observed while in chapter 3, when God asks a question, He is not seeking for information. He already knows. He wants the person he's asking the question to to come to the realization of something. He wants them to see their condition. And I want you to get this. This is so precious here. Brother DeGarmo mentioned this in Sunday school. But do you see how God takes a personal interest in Cain? Listen, this is so good. God comes down and speaks with Cain. God is interested in your life. Hey, God doesn't just love the human race, but God loves you individually. Isaiah 1.18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah 43.26, Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Micah 6.2 For the Lord hath a controversy with His people and He will plead with Israel. God is trying to reason together with Cain. God is giving Cain the opportunity to humble himself and admit his sinfulness and go on to do well by God. And in this, I believe we see the patience and long-suffering of our God. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, I want you to notice God places the entire problem upon Cain. Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well. Cain, would you just consider that this has all been your decision? God is never the problem. 
No matter how mad Cain gets at God, God did not do anything wrong. And no matter how mad Cain gets at Abel, Abel did not do anything wrong. Cain has no one to blame but himself. Therefore, he has no reason to be upset at God or his brother. Cain is the one who prepared the offering. Cain is the one who offered it. Nobody forced him. So not being respected by God is because of Cain's own actions. Not God's, not Abel's. We have no one else to blame for not being right with God. God has done everything necessary for you to be saved. He's done all that He can for you to have a close walk with Him. And God has even been patient to reason together and to plead with you. Jesus said, if you seek Me, you will find Me. If somebody doesn't find Him, they must not be seeking. But once someone has decided God should accept all the various approaches that are in the world for salvation, they have then lost sight of the holiness of God. Or they never cared to try to understand it to begin with. They say things like this, I think God should be accepting of all faiths. After all, they're genuine. They're trying. They're giving it their best. A person who says that has not yet learned God's holiness. And what it leads to is that person accusing God of not being fair. And they get upset about it. Ezekiel 18.25, Yet ye say the way of the Lord is not equal. Here now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? Once we begin to understand the holiness of God's nature, then we begin to understand the wisdom of His requirements. And we will admit that the problem is all on our end. And we'll begin to see how God is more than fair. He is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, compassionate. He is slow to anger and just. And now in verse 7, God lays before Cain the path of blessing and cursing. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. Deuteronomy 30.19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life. God has done everything for you to come to Him, but He will not force you. The decision is yours. Your decision about God's requirements will be the greatest decision you ever make upon this earth. It is the most serious. It carries the most weight. You say, what's so big about it? Eternity hangs in the balance of your decision about who Christ is. And it's never God who keeps you back. John uh, John 5.40, Jesus said, And ye will not come to Me, that ye might have life. It wasn't Jesus refusing to go to the Pharisees. It was them refusing to come to Christ. 
Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered, thee, gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Jesus said, I would have done it for you. And all God wants Cain to do is follow His requirements. This is well-pleasing in the sight of God. God wants Cain to repent and come to faith through the blood. And that's all God wants from you. And then God will accept you and you'll be made righteous. God comes to you, but will you respond? God is ready to take your sins away, but if you refuse His requirement, then sin lieth at your door. Or I would put it this way, you are yet in your sins. How many sinners have perished because of their own prideful refusal to submit to God's requirement? I don't believe that. I don't think that's true. I don't think it should be so narrow. I don't think God should be so close-minded. Well, you're a big, being upset at it doesn't change it. God says at the end of verse 7, And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. I won't get into this much here, but perhaps Cain believed that his birthright was at stake. Birthrights in those days were a big deal. That's a whole other thing. But Abel was righteous. There was no danger of Abel taking away the birthright. But Satan will play with our minds and plant thoughts. So God assures Cain, if thou doest well, then the anger you have towards your brother, it will cease and he will continue to respect you as the firstborn elder brother and you shall rule over him. Well, we see God is patient. God is calm. God tries to reason with Cain. But we find in verse 8, there was no getting through to Cain. There was no lessening of his anger because Cain is a wicked man. And Cain talked with Abel his brother and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Proverbs 14.7 warns us, He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly. Proverbs 29.22 An angry man stirreth up strife and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. Proverbs twenty two twenty four. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go. i got to hurry. We might say more about verse 8 next week, but Cain here commits the first murder. He refuses to bow before God and His requirements, and we see how rapidly sin can lead us away. But in closing this morning, the point that I want to leave you with from this verse is that religion always wars against grace. You'll see this again in Genesis through the birth of Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the son of works. Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael was a result of not trusting God. Isaac was the result of placing faith and trust in God. Just real quick, if you're unfamiliar with the account... God promised Abraham and his wife Sarah that they would have a son. Time went by, they began to doubt God's promise, and so they decided they could help God out. Sarah says, Abraham, why don't you go into Hagar, my handmaid, and rise up God's promised seed through her. Well, as Ishmael and Isaac grew, Ishmael began to oppress Isaac. 
And the Apostle Paul uses these two sons as an allegory between law and grace. Works and faith. Galatians 4, 28-31, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuteth him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Let me put it to you this way. Religion must be cast out. Why? Because religion always persecutes grace. Grace and religion cannot get along. And the aggressors against grace, it's hard to comprehend, but it is the religionist. Cain is a religious rebel. He was against Abel who was made righteous by God through the blood of Christ. Listen, it wasn't those that Jesus railed on who admitted their sinfulness. In fact, we find Jesus is meek. He treats those who were were caught up in sin in, in the Gospels very, very kindly and tenderly. But what Jesus did not tolerate was the religious crowd who thought they were righteous. And He calls them out in no uncertain terms. This is God in the flesh speaking to religionists. Just read Matthew 23. See how Jesus addresses the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the religionists within Israel. Seven times in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And once He says, Woe unto you, ye blind guides. So eight times He says, Woe unto you. Listen, Jesus didn't come on the scene petting the head of all the religionists. Jesus didn't show up and go, you know what, just keep trying your best. All roads lead to me, just keep doing what you're doing. No, 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 Jesus didn't show up and, and just coddle everybody and try to get them to understand that if you just honestly, genuinely feel this way, then it's going to be okay. No, God said, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, you are hypocrites. He does not go easy on His assessment of their religious efforts. Listen to what He told them. He said, you will not enter the kingdom. Well, we're off to a good start already. Somebody who says Jesus is a pansy has never read the Bible. He's a man's man. And he's looking into the eyes of the religious crowd and he's saying, you will not enter the kingdom. He said they would receive the greater damnation. He called them the children of hell. He said they were guilty. He said you're omitting mercy and faith. He said within... They were full of extortion and excess. He called them blind. He said they were full of dead men's bones. Full of uncleanness. He said that they were full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And He called them the children which killed the prophets. That's our Lord. That's what He thinks about your religion. Jesus closed it all out by saying in Matthew 23, 33, lest He left anything to the imagination. Ye serpents. 
ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? It is clear to me, through God's Word, that He hates man-made religion. In the book of Acts, it's the unbelieving religionist Jews who are persecuting believers. Jesus said in John 16, 2, They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. The religious crowd will persecute those of grace, thinking they are rendering service to God. And here's where I'm going with this, and and I'll be done. I'm sorry. Thank you for your patience. All of this in the New Testament is summed up as the way of Cain. In Jude verse 4, it, it says this, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. But then in Jude verse 11, it says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. 1 John 3.12 says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. There will always be animosity between works and grace. If you don't believe this, if you don't believe this, get on social media or get a group of religionists together and you tell them that salvation is a free gift that man can't earn. It only comes through faith in Christ alone and this only can save you and nothing else. You say something like that to them and then you watch as the religious crowd begins to work you over. And they will begin to add all their religious requirements. But you got to have good works in association with Christ's sacrifice. But you have to be baptized by this group. But you have to join this church. The religious crowd will butt in. All they are doing is inserting their religious works into the process. If you stand on grace alone through faith in Christ, then you will be on the religious enemies or on the religious hit list. <laughs> Hold on. This is not coming out right, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. If you stand on grace alone through faith in Christ, then you will be on the religion's hit list. Don't believe me? Ask Abel. Wherefore slew he him? Because his works were righteous. So as much as I didn't intend to this morning, I need to close with the same question I did last week. What are you trusting in? Your own works or God's grace? Are you still trusting in religion or faith in Christ? If you're still outside of Christ, then it isn't God's fault. It's your fault. Everything has been prepared. The way has been made for you. You just need to submit to God's requirement. And no amount of frustration will ever change this. Maybe it's time for someone here today to cast out religion. Embrace Christ. If that's you, then after I pray, I'm going to ask you to come and let us show you from the Bible how you can know Christ as your Savior. Would you pray with me, please?